0: welcome to the dfd a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming each episode we chat with industry leaders who share insights and their experiences into the dairy business i'm your host keith switzer and i hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast good morning everybody and welcome back to the dfd podcast i'm your host uh keith switzer i'm uh Really happy to have uh, Dr. Sarah Parsons uh, from Alta Genetics on this morning. Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got into uh, calf management.
1: Awesome. Yeah. So uh, my name is Sarah Parsons. I am Alta's classroom technical specialist. So both, basically my role is to provide technical support for classroom and calf management across North America. And I have a bachelor's degree in animal biology, and I have a PhD from the University of Guelph in dairy calf management, particularly around management and nutritional factors that influence winning success of calves. So I did my PhD with Dr. Trevor DeVries as my advisor, and then my advisory committee consists of Drs. Dave Renault, Michael Steele, and Ken Leslie. I have some practical experience, feeding calves, milking cows, um, and I have a lot of experience seeing what everybody does across the country as well for calf management.
0: Yeah, you've got a pretty neat role there. You get to see kind of a little bit of everything, the best of the best and the ones that want to improve. So it's a, I know it'd be a pretty exciting, uh, exciting position to be in. And then when we were talking yesterday, you said something about you're on an advisory board for research.
1: Our sister company, uh, Saskatoon Colostrum, or SCCL, uh, we're sister companies under a parent company, Uris. So for this part of this role, I sit on our research meetings every two weeks with partnership with the University of Gulf, Dr. Dave Renault and Michael Steele, to see what they're doing in terms of colostrum research and what we would like to see as an industry as well.
0: Yeah, I know it's... Uh... I got, I get into the question. I talk about it on the podcast all the time. I kind of sound like a broken record, but about quantity and and quality and how to affect that. And I know, um, you mentioned there yesterday, like they're doing some pretty cutting edge stuff at Guelph right now. And I know they, they were working on some colostrum trials there. um, I'm pretty sure too. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So they're doing a lot of work right now with, extended transition feeding of colostrum and transition milk as well as how colostrum can be used as a therapeutic for diarrhea in calves as well as michael Steele's group is starting to look at planes of energy and components of colostrum and how that is impacted by kind of dry cow as well as um, how that impacts the calf
0: yeah maybe we could talk about that like from your experience is there anything that you've seen that can really affect quantity or quality
1: yeah, so that's a tough one. It's very farm dependent. So there's a lot of factors that influence both the quality and the quantity. So you have your kind of your breed, your Jersey breeds, for instance, have higher quality just naturally than our Holsteins, um, as well as your parity. Older cows tend to have higher quality because of the fact they're exposed to a lot more pathogens as they're older, so they have more immunity built up that so they can put those antibodies into their colostrum when they calve. Um, Other things that can impact it are seasons. So sometimes you'll see seasonal fluctuations in both quality and your quantity. Your quality actually will be highest around fall, winter, lowest in the summer and spring, but your quantity or your volume kind of has that opposite impact. So the fall and winter is normally when you have your lowest volume and the summer and fall or summer and spring, sorry, are when you have your highest. So Parts of the year you have really high quality but low volume, and then the other parts of the year you have higher volume but lower quality.
0: Why can't we have both?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know. In the ideal world, we could just breed for like high quality, high volume, and it would be perfect. But, and nutrition also can play an impact, your dry period length as well, Um, vaccinating your dry cows, those protocols, they all can impact the uh, antibodies and the volume that you're getting in that colostrum.
0: I was having this uh, discussion with the producer a while ago because he's like for a while now, he's like, we haven't been able to get say more than two or three liters. And I've been racking my brain about it and just trying to figure out. And like you said, there's not a lot of information about it. And then the day he messaged me about it and says, hey, let's, we got to try something. And then all of a sudden I looked at, there's a study from uh, University of Michigan came out and it has was talking about dietary choline and feeding it in the, in the transition period and how they were seeing increases from that. So I just think that there's a lot more, it's a lot more prevalent in the industry and talked about more. So I think there's going to be some more things coming down the pipe and more, more people trying different things on farm to get, uh, to get quality and, and quantity up. So,
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's so frustrating when you have really high quality, but you only get a liter or two, like not even enough to feed the calf. So trying different management techniques to up that volume as well. Something that's really related to both of them, actually quality and your quantity is the timing of milking. So when you wait, more than six hours, there's a really big decrease in the quality. So how many antibodies are going to be in that colostrum as time progresses after calving, but then obviously your volume actually increases. So you're probably going to have a larger milking six hours after they calve, but the quality isn't going to be there. And it's a particular issue when that last night check, there's a long time between that last night check and that first morning check. And then you milk your fresh cow at the end of milking in the morning. So that time just continues to extend and extend and extend. And timing is important for both milking and feeding that calf as well.
0: Like, So what is the max? Like, Is it like six hours? Like after six hours, you should probably just kind of toss with the quality readings you're saying on refractometer.
1: So your refractometer is a good on-farm measurement of your quality. So it's a total solid measurement, basically. It's around 80% accurate, making it a good on-farm tool. So whenever you're measuring that colostrum, it's still going to be measuring that total solid or antibody Mm -hmm. level. Um, It's just the fact that when you do milk after six hours, there's just such a large reduction in antibodies, that reading is likely to be quite low. So it would indicate that you would get a larger volume, but then the bricks would be lower.
0: I guess for the calf's sake, the quicker we can get it out of the cow into the calf is probably the most I think disregard quality other so when I say quality I mean like bricks mm-hmm. reading not sitting in a like not quality like say bacteria, it sits yeah. in the pail for three you yeah, got bacteria that's that's yeah. where I was thanks for <laughs> thanks that's where he's getting at. but it's better to have that like out of cow in the calf right away is probably yeah. more key even if the quality is a little bit more because I don't know. I just it seems like, and from what we're hearing, uh, especially coming out of Guelph, is that they're talking more and more IGG in the first so many hours, right?
1: Yeah. So you touch on two good points: your kind of your quickness or your timing of getting that calf fed, as well as the total amount of immunoglobulins or IGG that you're feeding to those calves. Historically, we used to say 100 grams in total was good. And then 150 was really good. 200, great, gold standard. And now we're actually saying it's probably closer to 300 to 400 in the first 24 hours. That first feeding, you want around 300 grams of IgG. And that means your quality needs to be high with that volume as well. So all of that considered, you can feed really high amounts of really high quality colostrum. But if the absorption doesn't happen because the timing is too long, then in reality, that calf is still not going to be fed enough colostrum. So your absorption capacity in the calf is peaked right at birth. And after about two hours, it just continues to decline over time. And even between like two hours and six hours of life, there's almost a 50% reduction in absorption capacity in that gut.
0: It's like a ticking time bomb.
1: Exactly. So every hour counts. And that's why, yes, the timing is important on the cow side of things. But if you know, management just isn't going to allow you to melt that cow right away, it doesn't matter. You need to have some type of stored colostrum or a colostrum replacer on hand to get that calf fed because the timing of the calf is way more important than that timing of colostrum collection because we have ways around that.
0: What is the absorption? I, I can't remember. I, I learned it a long time ago. It's like, Like even when the calf's born, like born right away, it's only what, like thirty-five percent or something?
1: Yeah, yeah. So your we look at it as like apparent efficiency of absorption or AEA. It's just kind of a calculation on the amount of antibodies you feed to that calf and how well they actually absorb it. And that declines over time. So normally it's around 30 to 40 percent in case scenario, and then it just kind of declines and declines and declines. So yeah, like as high as we've seen it in that first hour of life is really only around 50%. And every and hour after that it keeps declining. So
0: And that's clean colostrum because I know yeah. it, it changes the absorption if it starts to proliferate bacteria.
1: Yeah, yeah, so when your colostrum is full of bacteria, you're not only feeding bacteria to that calf, especially when that gut is still developing and has those open cells in that gut that allow the absorption of these fake antibodies, but those bacteria can also be absorbed. And those bacteria like bind on to those absorption sites and those IgG and reduce the absorption of those antibodies. So you can be feeding really, really high bricks, a whole bunch of it. But if it's yeah. been sitting out doubling bacteria every 20 minutes, and it's full of bacteria, in reality, it's not going to be absorbed well, and you're probably going to make that calf sick too
0: yeah what are some practical things you've seen on farms that like to get clostrum out of the cow quickly and into a calf
1: so normally i recommend like you need to melt the cow and decide test it if you're going to feed it feed it and whatever you're not going to feed put it into the fridge right away or freeze it for future use and you want to get it cold quick so i recommend people freeze ziploc bags of water and drop that into the bucket of colostrum to help bring that temperature down quickly. Even if you're putting it in the fridge, as that warm colostrum cools off, that bacteria is slowing growth, but it is still growing. And so you wanna just make sure that temperature drops quickly. And it's good in the fridge for around 24 to 48 hours. If they do know they're gonna get through it in the next day or two, they can store it in the fridge. If not, just put it right into the freezer because that's what's going to really slow the bacteria growth and allow long-term storage.
0: Yeah, I've seen lots of things like that where people like frozen water bottles or whatever. Like they have a specific clostrum bucket, usually stainless steel, mm-hmm. and uh, like they'll they'll put it ice packs or whatever in it so that as soon as that clostrum hits it, it's it starts the cooling process.
1: Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, it's interesting because. There's actually been work that's looking to see like where the contamination comes from. And a lot of the times it is that catch pill that you're milking your colostrum into because the amount of times that gets fully cleaned and disinfected is probably not as much as some of the bottles and tube feeders as well. So that's a really important thing. Another tip for people is for any type of feeding equipment and milking equipment, you want to make sure you're allowing it to air dry fully. So when you do rinse that bucket or bottle or anything out, you don't want to tip it over and put it on a flat surface that creates a seal along the bottom. So when you pick that bucket back up, it's still moist on the inside. Bacteria love moist environments. So you want to put it on some type of uh, gray or a bottle holder or something that allows air to get up and inside that bucket to allow adequate drying too because just because it looks clean doesn't mean it's 100 percent sterile and if it's wet bacteria continue to grow
0: yeah and is there a difference in like disinfectants people are using I just use a like chlorine based or
1: yeah yeah most most people can use some type of detergent um when you do rinse (laughs) it you want to rinse it originally with a warm water not hot water when you put hot water on milk fat, it basically creates a biofilm. So all those fats stick to the side of whatever you're washing. So you want to do some warm water rinse and then you can go in with some hot water detergent and actual scrubbing. So take a scrub brush, make sure it's clean and actual action of scrubbing it helps break that biofilm up and make sure none of that bacteria can stick onto the side.
0: Yeah. And you touched on a pretty important point there. Like how, like you said, every 20 minutes the bacteria will double
1: yes at room temperature every 20 minutes
0: yeah so if it's left to a pail in the parlor and it sits there for four hours it's throw it it's, away. Growing, it's, it's growing some stuff
1: yeah throw it away
0: i've seen that lots of times where you see looks like a science project to be honest it's mm-hmm. lots of different colors and flies and stuff but
1: yeah
0: i know people get busy and things like that slip but the other thing too is like to tube or not to tube like What's the, what's the, I guess the perfect answer and what's the practical answer?
1: Um, so either answer is it doesn't actually make a difference. So some farms, they tube everything because they don't want to have to worry about feeding that calf. Um, and they want to make sure that what they know is going into that calf. Other farms don't really want to tube, but in reality, if that calf will not suckle and drink from the bottle the entire amount you need to tube it in. So there's work out of the University of Alberta with Dr. Michael Steele's group actually looking at bottle feeding three liters versus tube feeding three liters of colostrum. And the blood antibody absorption is the exact same. And this is because when you tube a calf, it enters a little bit enters into that rumen rather than that lower part of the stomach, that abomasum, that naturally, all the milk when they suckle goes into that lower abomasum. It used to be thought when you tube their antibody, IgG absorption was going to be reduced. But because that rumen is so small on the first day of life, it basically just overflows and puts the rest of the colostrum in the lower stomach, the right spot, and then it's absorbed into the small intestine. So the antibody absorption is going to be the same. And the quickness, like I said before, is what's super, super important. So When in doubt, just tube it into that calf.
0: Yeah, I think everything comes back here to timing, 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 because get it in quick, get it from the cow to the calf quick. Just so like you're just going to shorten up any area where you might uh, have some trouble or, you know, some management things might get in the way. But if it's done, bang, 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 bang. It seems like it's getting getting done correctly. So Mm -hmm. what about uh, pasteurization? like, is it more important to get it out of the cow into the calf or should you put that extra step in there and then maybe, you know, you know, you're going to have a calf rather than waiting for the parlor or, you know, going through a robot or whatever. And if it's say a last night, barn check, like, is it better off? Like you go take one out of a freezer somewhere and f- or or bag stuff too and, uh, and feed that rather than wait to get it like damned a calf.
1: Yeah, so there's actually been a really big increase in the adoption of pasteurization and colostrum in the last like couple of years across Canada. And there's a lot of pros and cons to it. So it's going to reduce that bacteria load that's going to be fighting for absorption. So it actually improves that antibody absorption in those calves. But and it also is going to reduce disease transmission. So a lot of herds that know that they have a disease like yonis or leucosis, some mycoplasma, All of those things are going to be killed off when you pasteurize that colostrum. So you don't have to worry about passing it along generation to generation through the colostrum. But with everything, there's also cons. So pasteurization of colostrum is not going to make gold out of garbage, right? So if you put Mm -hmm. low quality, full of bacteria into the pasteurizer, it's going to come out low quality. Lower bacteria, the pasteurization is not sterilization, so it's going to reduce that bacterial load, it's not going to kill everything. So you still need to have good colostrum management. And we also don't know what the pasteurization does with all of the other bioactives in colostrum. We're so focused on those antibodies those IgG. But all the other things in colostrum are there for a reason and play roles in the body. So this is actually an ongoing body of research right now to figure out what they all do in the body, why they're all there and what pasteurization is doing to those because they may be heat sensitive. Another issue with pasteurizers is those antibodies are super, super heat sensitive. So they can handle 60 degrees Celsius for 60 minutes. So it's kind of a low temp, long time pasteurization compared to a whole milk. But when that pasteurizer isn't calibrated or checked, they can drift a little bit like a lot of technology. And when they have a little bit of a higher temperature. So even at like half of a degree higher, it starts to denature or kind of burn off these antibodies. So those antibodies are still present in that colostrum, but they're not functional in the body. So when your pasteurizer is running hot, you can see a really big drop in those antibodies. So it's just really important to manage it make sure you're calibrating it and putting a thermometer in what says it's 60 degrees, what is it actually at to make sure it, it isn't higher than what it is
0: and you mentioned it a couple times like like 60 for 60 right with yes. cluster i'm like you don't want to go up to like 68 or 72 with it no no, no. low and, no low and you'll
1: slow. you'll like burn it all off and an important thing to mention that i see a lot on farms with pasteurizers is i'll mention make sure you're calibrating and they say oh i checked the bricks before and after and it's the same i don't have a problem But your BRICS is again, a measure of total solid. It's not a measure of active antibodies. So that BRICS measurement will not change even if it's cooking everything at 70 degrees and all those antibodies are inactive. So the only way of like actually knowing your IgG reduction is sending samples off to a lab for IgG analysis. When it's running normal, you get about a 10% reduction which is in antibodies, which is fine because that bacteria reduction still improves absorption efficiency Mm -hmm. of those antibodies. When it's hot, we've seen almost like a 70% reduction in antibodies, but your bricks will stay the same. So if you're you're worried, yeah. So if you're worried that your pasteurizer is running a little hot, you stick a thermometer and if you're still not sure, send some samples off for IGT analysis, just to make sure that that's not a problem.
0: Well, it's like anything else, everything gets out of calibration. So it's just, yeah. you gotta sit there once a month or whatever and just do the do the checks on it or do your due diligence. Yeah. So um, you mentioned it a couple other times, like what are some other goodies that we're looking at with Classroom? Like I know we always talk IGG, I've heard IGF, I've heard uh, a couple other things that I can't remember. It's all numbers and letters, so. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, so, um another huge component of colostrum that's really important is the colostral fat. So colostrum has a specific fatty acid profile that's nothing like milk. And those fatty acids and colostral fat play a role in thermal regulation in that calf. So it allows those calves to cool themselves off in the nice hot weather and warm themselves up when it's really cold out. And that's another reason that that timing is also important, really, really important when there's heat stress and cold stress environments as well, because that IgG absorption is going to be maximized, those calves are already susceptible to issues of absorbing those, and they need that fat to help regulate their body temperature. Other things in that colostrum, there's a whole bunch of things we call bioactive. So they just play a biological role in that calf somehow. So there's growth factors there's cytokines there's hormones non-specific antimicrobial factors oligosaccharides all of these just play different roles in that gut development of that calf they help fight off those bad bacteria support growth of good gut bacteria Um, they're all there for a reason they all play some type of role some of those act as kind of natural antibiotics as well And that's kind of all these bioactives, rather than just looking at those antibodies, are part of the reason why we started to feed a transition milk and colostrum after day one of life, because of the fact that they help support that gut and that gut development in the first couple of weeks of life.
0: You can't fool Mother Nature. I've learned that.
1: No. (laughs) No, it's there for a reason reason for
0: there's there's it's there for a reason. And then I guess like if we talk about pasteurization, like if some of that stuff's degraded what about bagged like powdered claustrum? is it the same kind of process or
1: yeah so it depends on the manufacturer um i will speak on behalf of secl so they distribute kind of across the globe but in canada particularly there is majority of the products are secl um there's also a label product that comes from the u.s So on SCCL side, they have a way of pasteurizing it that maintains all of those, they do a before and after test with every batch to make sure all those bioactives are still at biological levels. And all it is, is dried colostrum. So they collect colostrum across the country, gets shipped out to Saskatoon, dry, pasteurized, dried down, put in a bag. So nothing is taken out. It's 100% maternal colostrum. The only thing that's not there is bacteria and disease. Other companies will actually uh, try and reconstitute with different ingredients and kind of makeshift mother's colostrum. So when you flip the bag over and it has an ingredient list, that's a really good indicator of something is probably missing. So they'll put vegetable fat, palm fats, in place of colostral fat. So remember that colostral fat is the only one that will help those calves thermal regulate. Um, other things will be those uh, IgG will be a blood based rather than a colostral based IgG. Um, so it just kind of depends on the product. But if you flip it over and it has an SCCL on it and no ingredient list, that's a good indicator that it's mom's colostrum. It's very effective. If it has an ingredient list, um, or if you the other product in the country, then um, you just have to make sure that you're aware of some of the lacking things and make maybe feed a little bit of your maternal colostrum to offset the fact that some of these products don't have colostral fat.
0: I'm hearing of people what they're doing is they're mixing powdered and maternal, like just to make sure that the IgG concentration is high enough. I guess. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't always use IGG, but I guess it's the easiest one to measure. Yeah. so it's most well, kind of common that's in That's the one we really so. care about for yeah, yeah passive yeah.
1: immunity. Yeah, yeah. so uh, that's kind of that's it's called like enriching your maternal colostrum. So you can definitely use uh, we like colostrum colostrum based replacers um, to put into that maternal colostrum. There's actually some work out of Michael Steele's group. Uh, It's not fully published, but it's going to be presented at the American Dairy Science Association meeting next week, actually, on using colostrum replacer to bump that quality of IgG from a low quality maternal to a higher level just by adding it in. Um, And there's some good work. It's actually showing that you can take low quality add replacer right into that bottle of maternal colostrum, feed that calf and get the same IgG absorption or similar compared to that same kind of quality of maternal. So if you do milk out mom and she is really low, but you need, you know, you need to feed that calf. You can add a little bit of colostrum replacer into it to bump that quality and feed more antibody.
0: I guess when we're thinking about that too, it's it's just quantity and timing, get it in there. Whatever you have yeah. to do, I guess, to, to to get the proper amount of IgG into that calf because like I see it time and time again, like you can almost look at a farm and say, hey, the farmer is saying I've got scours at four and five days. Another farmer doesn't have scours at four or five days, nine times out of ten, it's it's you look at the clostrum, like you look at claustrum mm-hmm. protocols and how it's administered and timing and things like that to kind of go backwards because that's usually the, that's usually the gap in the, in the system where that calf doesn't necessarily get treated um, or processed right away. And we see it in a week, 10 days, three weeks later, sometimes for the rest of its life. Like it's amazing what the, it's, it's, it's just so amazing what the influence of proper clostrum protocols has on the entire farm operation. So.
1: Yeah, I always tell um, producers, when you're going to spend time and effort and money, it better be in the first couple hours of life, because that's what's going to pay off. It's not just going to pay off in the pre-weaning phase, but it's going to pay off. They're going to get in calves earlier. They're going to produce more milk in the first and the second lactation. Those ones that are poor doers right from the beginning, it normally comes down to poor colostrum management, and they just don't have that passive immunity transfer, and then, if they survive, they're poor milkers.
0: Yeah. Well, we've seen enough like, like epigenetic and early life studies saying, hey, like this nutrition at this point of their life is pretty critical because it does mm-hmm. have such an influence, you know, out and out and out. And we see that with heat stress research on calves and things like that, too. Like if it's a butterfly or like a drop in the water. Like you see the drop in the water, but then the waves that kind of proliferate out from that. Mm -hmm. um just keep reaching and reaching and reaching so Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, i want to talk to you two about uh, um, vaccination on the cows and like how much of that is like how much of that vaccination gets through the colostrum into the calf or through the placenta into the calf i guess
1: yeah so it doesn't get through the placenta into the calf. okay it's just claustrum Yeah, so the reason why that colostrum isn't a should do, it's an absolute need to do for that calf is because of the fact the type of placenta they have, it's not like humans, those antibodies do not cross the placenta into that calf. So it's not that they're born with no immune system, they're just born with no programmed immune system. So it Mm -hmm. takes time for their active immunity to program and allow them to actually protect themselves. And that's what that colostrum Absorption of those antibodies across the gut into that blood system is what that passive immunity is. So it recirculates those antibodies into those lungs and, those, and the gut to provide protection. So the colostrum is what is going to have all those antibodies in it. And so when you vaccinate mom, when she makes her colostrum, she pulls antibodies out of her blood system and puts it into that colostrum for baby. So there are a lot of like scour vaccines, for instance. For that specific reason it's not to protect mom it's just to increase the amount of antibodies she has in her blood for those specific diarrhea causing pathogens in calves so when she makes that colostrum it gets into that colostrum for calves. so that's something like you need to talk with your vet and decide which vaccine and the timing is best for your herd but it will increase the specific antibodies if given at the right time and the colostrum being made at the right time um, from mom, so if she tabs too early, she probably won't get many of those antibodies from the vaccine in her colostrum. But it all kind of comes down to timing and your actual mm-hmm. pathogens that you face on your farm.
0: Yeah, I know, and Owen, we preface this was saying, talk to your veterinarian about this because yeah, I have no idea. Like that's that's the vet's realm. I don't even worry about it. Like <laughs> you've got professionals that look after that stuff.
1: So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what
0: are, what about timings with? Uh, like antibodies, serums and boluses and stuff, like say your first offences and things like that. Is there a a timing issue with colostrum or can they be administered at the same time or or what do you see, I guess?
1: Yeah, so most of those kind of boluses you give uh, like like at the colostrum feeding. Um, I'm not familiar with work that's showing kind of the impact of that has on colostrum I know some preliminary anecdotal research through a different company has shown that it may actually impact some of that absorption um, in the gut of the mom's colostrum. But again, you're also thinking you are giving kind of a heavy dose of a particular antibody. So for instance, like a first defense bolus is for your E. coli. So you're giving a whole bunch of antibodies for E. coli into that gut so some of those will be absorbed to help provide protection Um, but again it comes back down to colostrum is made for a reason it should theoretically have all of the antibodies for your herd in that colostrum if your management is done well so a good colostrum meal is going to kind of outweigh that in my opinion
0: yeah so it's just dilutions the solution (laughs) <laughs> <Colostrum>. <laughs> just, just pump
1: full of colostrum that's the take-home message yeah yeah um
0: and should or how do producers uh measure passive transfer like we're doing we're talking about all this management stuff to make sure we get in the colostrum into them how do we measure success of that
1: yeah so that's measuring your excessive passive transfer, basically. And so you're looking to see your passive immunity level in the blood of those calves. So it's no longer thinking about that actual colostrum, it. it's how well are they actually absorbing what kind of management protocol you're doing. So you'd want to draw blood from them. And you can either look at your serum total proteins or STPs, your serum bricks, or send it off for IgG or antibody analysis. So a couple years ago, this cutoff point was a fail or a pass. That's all it was. In the last couple of years, calf experts kind of got together and said, look, the industry has shifted forward to reduce your failure of passive transfers. So we brought our death rate down, but our disease has really held consistent over the last 20 years. So how can we reduce the amount of disease these calves are getting? And that's when they generated a four category system for passive transfer. So it's kind of like getting an A, B, C, or a D on a test. You have excellent, good, fair, and poor, or your failure group. Now, at that lower end of that fair cutoff, that around um, 5.2 to 5.5 serum total protein, or like kind of 10 grams per liter of IgG, that used to be the cutoff point for fail or pass. Now that's kind of the bottom of the fair category. And we want calves to get like two categories up into that excellent category. So things that influence this obviously is the mass of the amount of IgG you're feeding. And to get into the excellent category, you're going to have reduced disease and the best performance in those calves. But that's where that 300 to 400 grams of IgG in that first day of life comes from. Those calves that had excellent immunity were fed a lot of antibodies. And to measure this, you want to draw the blood in the first couple of days of life. A lot of the times, practically, uh, producers and uh, consultants, veterinarians will start drawing blood all the way up to seven and nine days. Um, but the problem with this is your antibody levels degrades in the body as time progresses, as well as when calves start to get sick and dehydrate, your level in the blood actually like elevates because they have less blood, they're dehydrated, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: So you can get some like, some readings that aren't 100% accurate. So I always recommend trying to measure a day to two days after feeding of that colostrum. That's when those antibodies are peaked. And between those two time periods, one to two days after colostrum feeding, there's actually no difference in IgG level, but day three, even there's a difference between day two and three. So you have to kind of take in mind if you are measuring everybody at day seven, those results, And the dispersion within those categories, excellent, good, fair, and poor, they may not actually be what's happening on your farm.
0: Yeah, it's just, you got to make sure that you're getting good readings on that and testing for it, because I think that it's just another job on the farm. But it's a pretty, I think some of these little finer detail things, you know, whether it be ketosis testing or urine uh, pHs or serum total protein testing, like a lot of these little things on farms that, if there isn't a problem or not, you just don't do it. Like there's no, no problem. Yeah. yeah. It's a
1: management tool. Yeah. It's just a management tool, right? Like you pray, check your cows, you should really be testing your cows immunity. Now you don't want to get into the fact that like a specific calf failed or passed. Like you want Mm -hmm. to look at it on a population basis and, ideally you're going to have more than 40% of your calves tested in that excellent category, less than 10% in that failure group. Um, But it's all about like kind of how many calves you're testing. And we have heard that test and have more than 80% in that excellent category. So it's very achievable with good management and obviously good health and reduced death comes along with that.
0: Yeah. Um, So when does the calves like immune system, programmed immune system like the we've been we've put the usb in the computer and we've uploaded it like when does it when does it take over
1: yeah so it's around like a couple weeks of age so your passive immunity protects those calves for the first couple weeks and it declines as time progresses so those antibodies eventually kind of die off um but they have minimal protection in that first kind of two to three weeks from their active immune system So there comes a time that your passive immunity has declined, but your actual active immunity hasn't fully programmed yet. So we have this window of susceptibility. It's commonly around seven to 28 days of age, depending on how much maternal colostrum you gave to that calf, because the more colostrum, the better passive immunity. So it gives calves a little bit more protection while they're having that three to four weeks of programming their active immune system. But a window of susceptibility is when these calves are commonly getting sick, right? You have your diarrhea, your onset of pneumonia, yeah. right around that time. And that's because of the fact that your passive immunity is starting to dwindle down and decrease. And they just haven't built up that immune system yet.
0: How much of it is like the, the passives drop or the passives increasing and the inherited is dropping? And then we have a disease pathogen cycle too.
1: Yes. That yes. throws
0: another monkey wrench into this whole this whole thing
1: yeah absolutely like a lot of your like diarrhea pathogens for instance have that kind of seven to ten day uh, incubation period so that's why you see your diarrhea start to hit them then um but it all comes down to if you have more of those antibodies in the system when they are exposed to things like that your like pathogenic load that's going to make that sick is lower because those antibodies are fighting it off so Mm -hmm. those calves that have no antibodies like you look at them funny and like the time, like the first time that they have a little sniff of something, they get sick from it a couple of days later because they have no antibodies to help reduce yep. that load.
0: That's all fascinating. Like it just, it just always boggles my mind. Like how fine tuned we've had compared to when I started years ago was that we didn't care about it. And now, <laughs> and now I think half the battle or half of it is, is that, Everybody complains they have too much heifers, but the producers got way better at keeping them alive <laughs> 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 by doing things like you're talking about with with uh, you know proper cluster management and stuff like that. And the producers have mm-hmm. learned and and taken what the university like what they've been studying and implementing it on their on their farms. And like we're seeing tremendous results, right? So
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Um, at the beginning, you kind of mentioned uh, some work with uh, transition milk. So what's the deal with it? Because it's not colostrum, but it's not saleable milk. It's somewhere in limbo in between.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> what's, so what's its, its normally,
1: benefits? Yeah. So it's normally like the definition is like kind of milking two to five after your colostrum. And the, the whole mentality of like why this is important is because colostrum doesn't go right to saleable milk, like you said. It does have that transition. So those bioactives, like I mentioned, all those components of that colostrum slowly decrease over time. And as you feed those transition milks that has all those bioactives in it. And that plays a lot of role in some local protection in the gut and helps with gut development. So there's work that's showing the impact of going from a colostrum meal to milk versus colostrum meal to like a 50-50 Colostrum and milk combination to kind of mimic that transition milk for just a couple days of life, and the gut morphology like has changed a lot. So the villi or like kind of the surface area absorption areas in that gut are bigger and better, so they can absorb more nutrients. So when you feed this transition milk across a couple days, it helps with that gut development to make that calf be able to absorb their nutrients better in life and to protect that calf from different diseases as well.
0: Yeah, and I know I've heard of people to like either with calves getting, say, diarrhea or something like that, they'll give them transition milk or they'll give them leftover colostrum and you know seeing good results with it rather than, you know, disposing of it or throwing it away or dumping it down the drain, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's there's so there's actually some research supporting that now. Uh, Dr. Dave Renault's group did this using uh, colostrum meal like kind of a 50-50 meal uh, over a few days rather than just milk replacer when the calves are diagnosed with diarrhea. And when you do feed this kind of 50-50 meal for uh, a longer, like a couple days of life, these calves get over it faster. And it's almost like taking like a pepto-bismol when you're not feeling well. It helps support that gut, right? Um, And there's some work out of the University of Kentucky as well, looking at when calves decrease their milk, Uh, drinking behavior, so they're drinking speed or the amount of milk that they are drinking off of robot feeder, they actually intervened with a meal of either a milk replacer by bottle or a meal colostrum replacer over a couple days. And this was just those calves weren't really clinical, they just based on changes in milk drinking behavior. And the calves that got that colostrum replacer meal actually didn't have like had a reduced risk of pneumonia and a lung consolidation later on in life. So there's clearly a lot of benefits to these supporting those calves when they do have a little health issue. Um, but it's practically been done for a while too. People will drop like ice cubes of colostrum into bottles when calves aren't fed yeah. well. Or they'll just go in with some meals of their kind of lower quality colostrum just to help support that calf.
0: So with the like the transition milk, like is there more and more work being done on this? Or is this kind of like at the beginning stages of it? Or is there other... I guess hormones, vitamins, like goodies coming from the cow that helps, you know, train that calf's immune system as well.
1: Yeah, so this is a really big area of ongoing research. Like uh, Michael Steele and David Nose Group are looking at this. We know that components of colostrum and transition milk do something in the calf. We're not 100% sure which of them are the ones that are kind of playing the biggest role. Um, but it's yeah, we're actually looking right now, we're doing a project uh with Mike Steele, and he's looking at feeding a little bit of colostrum over a two-week period. We've done this in the past as well and have seen a lot of benefits rather than just feeding kind of that two or three-day transition melt, well, but over that susceptible diarrhea period as well. And there's been a lot of benefits in reduced days sick, reduced death, improvements in growth, feed intake. And, and I think it all comes back down to just supporting that gut and that gut development for sure.
0: Yeah. I think anything we can do with, with the calves just to kind of push them over that edge. Cause they're, they aren't your grandpappy's calves. That's for sure. Like the genetically, these things are so, Fragile.
1: so advanced.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it, it just like what a cow can do nowadays is like there's cows on farms producing, you know, over 200, like hundred kilos of milk mm-hmm. at, you know four percent fat like that's like she's producing four kilograms of fat a day yeah like like it's a it, it's just mind-boggling and and what they go through and and i think anything we can do in the early life just kind of help set the set the set them up and a lot of people are genomically testing too so we're kind of fine-tuning that and now do you get involved with much uh genomic stuff or are you
1: no not no no really. Like, not genomic testing, no. Um, On the genetic side, I will say with colostrum and just management in that pre-weaning and weaning phase, like every event that that calf has, whether it's failed transfer of passive immunity or diarrhea, pneumonia, all of that, even poor growth impacts that genetic expression. So Mm. that's why colostrum and just management, even after day one of life is so important because you pay for that semen to create that calf. And if you're not making sure they're managed well and allowing them to basically turn on all of those genes and get the genetic expression, they're just never going to produce like they should genetically produce. So that's really, really important.
0: I always compare it to corn. Like you can have like the best genetic seed of corn, but as soon as you put it in the ground, that's when the variables started. So if you have the best genetics, but don't give it fertilizer, it's not gonna reach its genetic potential to express those genes.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Is there a correlation, like I know, um, not necessarily genomics, but like if you look at average daily gain, is that a good indicator of what uh, future life production is gonna be? Like, And I know, like tying it back to colostrum, I find that the herds that do a better job with colostrum protocols and making sure that those calves get it in a timely manner and adequate adequate uh, quantities that they they tend to have higher average daily gains so i don't know if that's a genetics management colostrum. Mm -hmm. it could be a combination of all three um but what do you see
1: yeah so it's likely a combination of all three but when calves do have failed like transfer of passive immunity they are at risk for reduced growth and feed efficiency and part of that comes along with because they're going to probably have increased risk of disease and struggles. Right. Um, But that growth has been linked to improvements in lactation performance, but all of that comes down to like how you're managing that calf, like during the entire milk feeding phase. Like I obviously colostrum is like the number one factor of performance and longevity for that calf. But after day one of life, If you're not feeding them enough milk if you're not weaning them properly and you're not managing them well if they're in a really high stress high pathogen environment they're not going to succeed because of disease pressure as well as reduced growth and then they're just not going to reach their genetic potential so yes colostrum is the number one factor you need to focus on but don't think day one is the only area you need to focus on in your calf management day two and on is also equally as important and Yeah, when you do, you do want to get that good average daily gain to help with that genetic potential.
0: Yeah, it's just, uh, I know I should measure it more on farms and, you know, doing projects with summer students and stuff like that helps, like we can go through and do some taping and just kind of get a, it's not the most accurate, but it's better than not having anything. Um, So it kind of gives us an idea of how we can kind of fine tune calf programs at that point or... You know keep doing what you're doing it or you know find better better ways mm-hmm. uh, to do that kind of stuff so
1: yeah um, yeah and you know i i would love to see everyone measuring all of their tabs. <laughs> like i think having yeah. average daily gain on all tabs is just such a great management tool to be able to kind of yeah decipher what we need to change in our program you can it'll alert you to issues in a program if you have management changes as well as if you are at the area of, you can start culling some of your extra young stuff. If they have really poor average daily gain and you know they got sick once or twice, they're probably going to be yeah. a poor doer in the milking herd. So,
0: What's a cutoff? Like if you have to do, say, one or two or three interventions, like how, how long should you give a calf a chance, I guess? Like how many strikes till you're out?
1: Well, that depends on the herd.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I mean, okay, let's say best case scenario, you have a whole bunch of extra heifers that you don't need. Um, You can be a little bit more like cutthroat with it, but it also depends on like your amount of disease pressure. Like if 80% of your calves get diarrhea, like I wouldn't start be culling based on a treatment or two of diarrhea. Uh, Your pneumonia and your lung consolidation, so even if you ultrasound lungs and you don't see clinical pneumonia, those are linked to a really big reduction in your milk production. And Same with your average daily gain. I would personally recommend combining multiple criteria before you start culling based on that. So like combine your disease records with your growth and then make those decisions.
0: Yeah, um, we all have platforms that we can kind of... Record all that information so, like, it's there. So I guess when you do, if it is time to sell a heifer or something like that, it can you can look at it back at all the all the records and say, oh, she had two bouts of pneumonia, like she's high on the list, and say, oh, it's poor average daily gain too. Like, it gives you criteria to make those management decisions. So,
1: yeah, Um, absolutely. And the worst thing ever is to record all this data on a piece of paper and never look at it again after the calf leaves the calf barn that's just a lot of extra work with no benefit long-term. So if they are going to go through the extra labor of doing all of this good data recording, make sure it's in a platform, whatever you're using to be able to use it long-term as well.
0: Um, I don't think I'd do this podcast justice if I didn't talk about heat stress <laughs> in utero because yeah. like yesterday was a scorcher. Today's the 16th of June. It was like 35 degrees yesterday with high, yeah. high humidity. So... Um, what kind of effects does heat stress have on say the calf in utero
1: yeah uh a lot (laughs) that's the answer so much and dry cow management is so important not just for the cow but for that calf so obviously that cow there's so much work and we know the impact right away whether they're a dry cow or milking cow with that heat stress But when that calf is inside that cow is experiencing heat stress, there are like placenta function issues and fetal development impacts. So that calf comes out behind the start arc already. Like she already is off to a bad start. Their growth and metabolism is reduced. They're going to have reduced immune function. So they don't actually even absorb uh, the colostrum as well. So there's something that happens in that gut inside mom that's having heat stress that makes their efficiency absorption of the colostrum reduce. So they're gonna have reduced thermal regulation as well. They're gonna have a higher risk of disease. Survivability is gonna decrease. They're not gonna grow well. They're gonna kind of be your poor doers. And it's not just right off the bat. Some of these growth reductions of these calves, they start out lower and even post weaning, they're still at a smaller skeletal structure and body weight. As calves that didn't experience heat stress. And there's some recent work showing that the mammary gland development is impacted. So inside that mom experiencing heat stress, that mammary gland of that calf is never going to have as many cells as it should to produce as much milk.
0: In the calf, not the cow.
1: In the calf, yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've, so I've, that's, I've, I've yeah. That, I've calf seen that work comes from out Florida.
1: Yeah, that calf comes out probably a poor doer during the pre-weaning phase or more susceptible to issues and then once they do give you a calf and start milking that mammary gland is never going to produce as much as it should have just because it doesn't have the capacity and they actually some work out of florida as well looking at ovary size and those ovaries are also smaller in that puberty area and so they're looking actually now to see the impact on reproduction so these calves that come out in heat stress, like right now in Ontario with this ridiculous hot, humid weather, they're probably not going to melt very well in two years if they make it there, and they may not even get in calf.
0: Yeah, like that's a, it's hard to quantify because you don't see it.
1: Yes. yes.
0: Because like it's all of a sudden two years down the road or 22 months or whatever it is and that cow is coming into mm-hmm. the milking line and ah you know we just got a rough group of heifers coming through here and then i hear that enough on farm then it's like okay let's look back to see what happened two years ago when were they born and what (laughs) yeah like it just seems like they're they're already behind the eight ball when they're born so
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that just goes to show the importance of your heat abatement options in that dry cow area. Like they need to have fans. They need to have sprinklers. Like you need to be making sure that you're setting those dry cows up for success in their own lactation, but also that mm cap in their future lactation.
0: Like my first spot, I always talk about heat abatement is in the parlor, in the holding area. Make sure you have fans and sprinklers in there. All all barns should have fans in them now yeah. like it's it's just warmer and warm in the summer like all barns should have fans sprinklers are here there like i'm not totally convinced on especially on lactating cows i think if you're milking three times a day they're going to the parlor three times a day to get soaked and cooled. Mm-hmm. probably enough um but dry cows like like i said earlier about calves you know we used to forget about them well we used to forget about dry cows too and they were just like the they were just the group off in the back barn that you didn't pay attention to, and now, like, if you look at, say, if you had to rank where to do heat abatement on a farm, my ranking would be one at the parlor, two in the close-up dry cow or transition pens. So your close-up cows and your fresh cow, fresh group. If you mm-hmm. if you have that availability, if not, just in the dry cows, like parlor, dry cows, and then think about the lactating if you want to put. Uh, sprinklers in there for heat abatement but not always necessary but those Mm -hmm. those pregnant cows are carrying around a little furnace inside them which is the calf Mm -hmm. plus Mm -hmm. they're typically on high fiber diets which we know creates more heat to digest so then we got their gut which is another little fire inside (laughs) like another little furnace so it's just we keep asking this cow to do more so we have to do more for her to support that production I guess is is where I'm rambling to so
1: yes absolutely absolutely
0: anyways uh was there any other final thoughts Sarah I know we've covered a lot of topics today mostly just around early calf life and nutrition and claustrum is there anything that you think that producers should know or or I guess that you wanted to share
1: uh one thing i haven't mentioned yet but it's a good thing to mention it's not just about getting that colostrum cooled quickly and storing it for bacteria growth but how you warm it up or saw it, it is also really important good point and I, yeah and this is something i see on farms a lot so how do you thaw your colostrum and they always say as hot as water can go especially when they do freeze in those water bottles that you were talking about it takes a long time to get that thawed and up to body temperature for that calf And so, yeah, like I am guilty back in the day, too, of probably burning a lot of those antibodies off. So if you can't reach your hand in that water and hold it there comfortably, it's too hot and it's killing off all the good stuff in your colostrum, 60 degrees maximum, ideally 50 degrees Celsius water bath. So whether you create your own colostrum warmer or get one um, that can help reduce some of those kind of variabilities and opportunities for issues in your colostrum management
0: yeah I think just making sure that the attention to detail, especially when it comes to early life calves and and transition cows, mm-hmm. is pretty mm-hmm. key so well sarah i uh I really appreciate you coming on the podcast uh and sharing your your knowledge and your passion for what you're doing with uh, early calf nutrition. I know um it's 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 the most critical part of a cow's life is like that first few days um to get them off to the right start that kind of keeps building their success in the future so i know uh you've got a i could just tell by talking to you, you have a ton of passion for it and i and i really appreciate you coming on the podcast to share that with us so
1: oh thank you thank you so much for having me keith i really enjoyed it and yeah colostrum is number
0: one factor. It's such Clou- an
1: important management tool. Claustrum <laughs> is cool. <laughs> yeah. Claustrum is cool.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Sarah.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the dairy team at Crown Nutrition Canada and our Sure Game dealer partners. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player, and please leave us a review. If you'd like more information about today's discussions, please reach out. We have left our contact information in the show notes. I would also like to extend a special thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.